Racers, start your engines, because Televisionary's covering RuPaul's Drag Race. It's like drugs, or like black market organs. Like, you know it's there, you just don't realize the full extent of how much money is being made off of them. It's an unfortunate reality of reality TV. I think the show has transformed the industry in such a way that it is inextricable at this point. Hello! Hello! I'm Cody Hoffman. And I'm Elena Hillard. Psych! <laughs> no, uh, I'm no. Cody Hoffman. And I'm Elena Hillard. Yeah. We and get confused it, sometimes. We do. Mostly I think it's our voices, but also our appearances. Yes. Yeah. Very much twins, the two of us are. People like will see us out in public together and... You know, they'll know one of us, but then they won't be able to tell which one of us it is that they know. And yeah, it's a whole thing. Yeah, it's been happening our whole lives. Sure has. Even before we knew each other. Yes, for sure. I always wondered why people would call me Elena when I was an infant. And now, <laughs> I, then I met Elena in middle school and I found out. Anyway, if you've never listened to this podcast before, in each episode, we take a deep dive into some of the most impactful shows to ever hit the airwaves. We cover their history, their key moments, and their impact on society, culture, or anything else that we deem important. So what show are we going to be talking about today, Cody? Today we are talking about a show that I think truly has changed the world. It has changed societal perceptions about certain things. It has created a rabid fan base and actually kind of jump-started its own economy. So it's definitely worth talking about. It's one we're very excited about as well Absolutely. because we are both big fans. The show of the day is RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> that was my imitation hello, hello, of Rupaul's laugh. <laughs> Did you like how I missed all of those notes when it drops down the octave? Um, I didn't think too much about it, actually. Oh, wow. Well, I didn't hit any of them, if you're keeping score at home. <laughs> Do you want me to auto-tune it in editing? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> Just like RuPaul himself. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Don't auto-tune it too much or everyone will think that was actually RuPaul humming That's that true. theme song. <laughs> Okay, so as I mentioned, Elena and I are both big fans of Drag Race, but both of us have only fairly recently gotten into it. I started watching the show in 2020, probably like January or February of 2020. Okay. And was just, you know, kind of taking a stroll through one episode or two at a time. And then the pandemic hit and there was nothing to do in the world except sit home and watch Drag Race. So... I burned through all 12 seasons. Oh, wow. Yeah, I watched all of the series and all of the All-Star seasons within, I don't know, like two months, probably. So, yeah, it was a, a substantial chunk of my life that I 
lost to Drag Race, but that I gained so much from. (laughs) (laughs) So I didn't start watching until, oh gosh, what was it? Like two, three months ago? Like not... It was pretty recently. It was pretty recently. And I have seen a decent amount of it. I've seen four, five, and six. I've seen nine. And I've seen All Stars two and four. No one cares. I don't know why I'm being so specific. (laughs) And then more recently, I watched the UK season two and I've just hopped around and seen like a few random episodes from pretty much every season at this point like especially knowing that we were going to talk about it I've seen a little bit here a little bit there I know for a fact that I will probably eventually watch even the all of the international seasons because honestly some of my favorite RuPaul content that I've seen is from the international seasons yeah I mean the American seasons overall are awesome you know as far as entertainment value goes I will say that I think that UK season two which you have watched is one of the best seasons maybe the best season I think it is the best season but yeah I I think it is just one of those shows that kind of sucks you in and (laughs) like you get a taste of it and then you just can't stop watching and you can watch the same episodes over and over forever and not quite get tired of it. It truly is my reality show perfect storm. Like it's (laughs) a competition show, but it's not like a singing show where it's something like that. Like there are challenges, there are mini challenges and maxi challenges. There are contestants that you get to know enough, but ultimately at the end of the day, like there will be one winner. It's very much like Top Chef to me, like the same kind of format. And it sucks. I mean, I've seen every season of Top Chef multiple times because it's my favorite reality show. But in a weird way, RuPaul's Drag Race is very similar to that in my mind. They share a lot of similar qualities. Mm -hmm. So like for anyone who may not have seen it, in case you have no idea what RuPaul's Drag Race is, we'll we'll spill some tea for you, hunty. (laughs) So in each season... A group of drag queens, usually 13 or 14, compete in various challenges, usually involving singing, dancing, improv, comedy skills, fashion design, stuff like that. And each episode typically features one main challenge called a maxi challenge and a runway presentation where the queens present their best looks spelled L-E-W-K-S, to uh, fit the category of the episode. So it might be something like Blue Bonnet Bonanza or something like that. And all of the queens would showcase their take on a Luke showing a blue bonnet. Uh, I don't think they've ever actually done a Blue Bonnet Bonanza, but that's the idea anyway. So at the end of each episode, (laughs) the two worst performing queens as decided by the host RuPaul and the other judges will lip sync for their lives and it does not end in an execution it ends in RuPaul telling one queen Shantae you stay and the other queen to sashay away and then three or four queens make it to the finale where they then lip sync for the crown and RuPaul ultimately decides the winner and the winner gets a hundred thousand dollars and a couple of other nice prizes. So that's the same format that the show has followed now for the 13 seasons that it has aired. It has filmed a 14th season for the US version as well. Yeah, it's been on the air for quite some time now. It premiered on a network called Logo, 
in 2009 and then more recently in 2017 it moved to VH1 for season 9 and it's been there ever since. I will say that with All Stars it did get a little wacky. They were going to air All Stars 5 on Showtime which these networks they are all under the CBS Viacom umbrella of networks. So All Stars 5 was supposed to be on Showtime in 2020 but it ended up airing on VH1. They said this was because of the pandemic which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but, you know, maybe that's their reasoning. <laughs> I, I think it was, like, something to do with they were supposed to be filming more episodes of something else that would have, like, filled up more of the VH1 schedule. Like, oh, they had reality shows okay. or something that would have been in production to fill that space if the pandemic hadn't been happening. But since they already had All Stars 5 in the can, they just kept it for VH1 instead of putting it on Showtime. That's my oh, okay. understanding of it anyway, but still it seems like... Strange. Yeah, like, I don't know. I think it was safer to keep it on VH1 than Showtime anyway, but... Well, yeah, and I mean, we see with All Stars 6, it is now currently airing as we record this. All Stars 6 is airing exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. And so to me, when I was looking at the way the show or the iterations of the show have kind of shifted around, it made me feel like... CBS Viacom knows that this is a really viable option for them. It knows that it has such a built-in kind of RuPaul fan base that they know that kind of whatever network they put it on, it's going to be a draw for people, for viewers. Mm -hmm. And I also did a little digging and I found out that Paramount Plus is going to be releasing a completely original to Paramount Plus, like an original program called Queens of the Universe, which is a drag singing competition show. So my thought is let's make All Stars 6 exclusive to Paramount Plus, get people in for that, and then hopefully they stay for our new original content that we're going to be releasing. Right. I mean, it makes sense. I don't know how many other draws there are for <laughs> Paramount Plus at this point, personally. <laughs> I'm not trying to knock it. I feel like I could do a decent amount of like pooping on streaming services here which I'm not trying to do like I understand the economics of like the business these days but I just can't see that many people justifying the cost for Paramount Plus. But Cody, what about the iCarly reboot? Oh yeah, I am just clamoring to watch that. <laughs> I have never watched iCarly. I have no desire to, but I am very sure that that reboot is just awful. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I haven't watched it, but it makes me feel bad to even see <laughs> the ads for it. <laughs> Uh, uh, anyway. Okay, so there have been 13 regular seasons of the show that have aired, and it was only in the last couple of years that the show started premiering these international versions. Now, the American version of the show has been released in a ton of other countries around the world, but you've recently had Drag Race UK, Drag Race Down Under, both of which are hosted by RuPaul, and then you also have versions in Canada, Holland, Spain, Thailand, Italy, that don't feature RuPaul as the host, but uh, RuPaul appears in some pre-recorded video clips and things. And then there was actually a Chilean version of the show that was the first international iteration to premiere, but it aired in 2015 under the name The Switch. But it's not a direct descendant, I guess, of Drag Race, but it is acknowledged as being based on Drag Race. And then there have also been six U.S. All-Stars season and an international All-Star season has already been filmed and will apparently be out next year. So this is 
a huge international commodity at this point. And it's kind of surprising to me that it took so long for it to gain the kind of prominence internationally to spawn all of these different versions just within the last like three years or so. I don't know why it why they waited so long. I can't really figure out what the rationale behind that was. Can you? <laughs> no, I mean, the only thing I can think is that I feel like different things I've heard about production make me feel like the show is very much concerned about like making money. And so I don't know mm. if they just waited till like waited till a certain point where like they knew financially spinning off and throwing money into these other iterations of the show would be like viable for them like I don't know I really don't know that's pure speculation on my part but it is kind of weird but I mean it's also I mean let's not forget it is sort of a controversial or unusual kind of subject matter so maybe there was just some sort of risk associated with spinning it off too much in areas where the community or viewership might not be that accepting of what's being shown on screen. Yeah, that's true. Because if you look at the list of countries that have gotten an international version, it's mostly countries that are known for being you know, pretty accepting of right. the LGBTQ plus community. And they haven't really ventured into you know, places that would likely have a lot of backlash featuring a competition like this on television. But anyway, whatever their reasoning for finally doing it, I'm glad that they're doing it. <laughs> Me too. And it's not only been a successful show in terms of spin-offs and like the whole franchise that's been created, it's also been a critical cons critical consess, Jesus. Critical success. RuPaul has won the Emmy for Outstanding Reality Competition Show Host for the last five years, which is a record in the category. And the show itself has won for Outstanding Reality Competition Show for the last three years. So it's turned into a very critically successful show, despite the fact that its first season looks like it was filmed on Vaseline lens cameras. <laughs> yeah, that is uh, a running joke on the show, that <laughs> season one filter, where everything just looks so blurry and like it was shot on a disposable camera. <laughs> like, I couldn't believe that like, it was just the way that it was filmed the first time I watched it. I thought there was actually something wrong with my TV. I was like, <laughs> why is... I was like, is my Amazon Prime, like, really lagging right now that this quality oh is so God. bad on this picture? And I was, like, checking all of the settings. Did I accidentally sit on my remote and change, like, the focus <laughs> on my TV or something? Nope. That's just the way it always looks. And look how far they've come. <laughs> yes. It's always funny, too, whenever they have season one queens on All Stars, because then they come on and you're mm -hmm. like, oh, that's what they actually look like. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't tell because it looked like their faces was just like censored before <laughs> just blurred out but anyway for all of the show's critical success it of course has a huge audience response as well and it continues to grow which is the craziest thing the premiere of season 13 was simulcast on Viacom CBS owned channels including the CW uh, which was its first network television exposure and it thus became the show's most watched live airing ever for season 13 of the show that is nuts especially when no one watches live TV anymore yeah <laughs> it for just real. shows the draw that this show is. It's crazy. It was over 1 million view viewers 
for that premiere. Mm -hmm. Which, in this day and age, for a show that skews to younger demographics, for sure. Right. That is impressive. Well, that's pretty much it for the history. Do you want to get into some important moments in the show? I would love to. Awesome. So (laughs) one of my favorite important moments of the show actually happened in season four, and it concerns the disqualification of Willem. So Willem was a contestant on season four and was disqualified for breaking the rules. And in my opinion, there are two sides to this story. (laughs) Essentially, the story presented on the finale of season four is that Willem was disqualified for having conjugal visits with her her husband, for lack of a better term. Her husband was coming to visit her in the quarters that they were staying in, and that is, of course, against the rules, because on a reality show, you are not supposed to have contact with the outside world. You are not even really supposed to tell people where you are going or what you're going to film. It's all supposed to be kept under wraps. So that's why Willem was disqualified, but And without getting into too many details here, because it's not my story to tell, if you want to hear Willem tell her own story, you can listen to Race Chaser podcast. It's hosted by two former drag race contestants, and they get into all sorts of behind the scenes stuff. They do recaps of the seasons that both of them were on. So you can listen to that. But in Willem's own words, the contestants were very much mistreated on season four. And I think that Willem sort of became the thorn in the side of production a little bit by calling them out on some of the shady things that producers were doing behind the scenes. Like, for example, referring to a contestant whose name is Latrice as La Something over the... walkie-talkies and complaining that they were given $75 to feed 12 grown men. Also, Willem claims that there was another opportunity outside of Drag Race that she knew she was going to leave the show to go do, I think it was like Jersey Shore the musical or something. So she knew she was going to leave early anyway and went to the show to get exposure. This is an interesting incident for a lot of reasons for me, but primarily because I think that it ended up like, I mean, as shady as producers were already kind of being to contestants, I think that this incident, this breaking of the rules and you know, showing it on the show. I think it really changed the way the behind the scenes sort of happened from this point forward on the show. I think that it forced producers to make things a little more tight. I think contestants from this point forward were a little more rigidly controlled. They were not allowed to really hang out or talk to each other very much after this point. And in my opinion, I think that this added to a level of professionalism behind the scenes that maybe even influenced the professionalism that we end up seeing on screen. I think season four was really the first season to hit any kind of real mainstream success. And it was kind of a turning point in the show. And for me, this incident helped catapult the show into a different league of production. Am I making sense in saying that? Yeah, I think so. And I agree with that. It it definitely seems like it changed the show for the better. Maybe not from the contestants' perspective, because it does (laughs) seem like they are very kind of secluded and like it's not easy being on the show there's i think a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes that we just don't know until someone like willem tells their story and i'm sure that's the case with a lot of reality shows so whenever something like this comes to light and you see the picture that they paint or try to paint of what happened on the actual show and then 
you know, hear the sides of the story that are not shown on the show, you realize that, you know, it's not all as squeaky clean and as perfect and nice as you want it to be. And it just, like, I don't know, it makes me feel kind of gross liking a show so much that might have bad things going on <laughs> behind the scenes that's not actually creating a good experience for people whenever it's being filmed. But that's the case with a lot of shows, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. That's a kind of interesting segue into this next point, uh, which is about another disqualification, but it is one, a, a very different <laughs> reason for the disqualification. And it's one that the show, I think, handled in a really deft and quick way that would not have been possible probably back in season four or any other season before it, maybe. In season 12, there was a contestant named Sherry Pye who made it the whole way to the final four when the show was filmed in the summer of 2019. Two days before the episode in which she first appeared on the show, there were some allegations allegations posted about her online. Well, allegations about the man behind Sherry Pie, Joey Guglielmelli, I want to say, that alleged that he posed as a casting director and was communicating with one man was the first to post allegations, but several others came along and corroborated the story in the days to come, saying that Joey had catfished them and convinced them to take videos of themselves masturbating, to take steroids for muscle growth, all of this in order to get various film roles and professional advancement. Of course, none of that was going to happen, but the show quickly decided that Sherry Pie was going to be immediately disqualified on the day that the first of her episodes would air. They announced that she would not even appear in the live finale, but that the rest of the season would air as planned out of respect for the hard work of the other queens. Episodes, though, were subsequently edited to basically scrub Sherry Pie from the season. So uh, the first maybe two episodes were not changed too much because they couldn't did them that quickly, but there were episodes later on that you really didn't even notice Sherry Pie being in at all. Like, sometimes I don't even think they showed her runway presentation. And any time that Sherry Pie won a challenge, which I think was just twice, VH1 donated the $5,000 that she would have received as her prize to the Trevor Project instead. So props to VH1 for making that kind of split-second decision and taking the initiative to re-edit the entire season <laughs> to minimize her appearance. Like, that had to be so much work and it's a yucky situation of course to find yourself in but I feel like they did right and they knew that it, the backlash was going to be way worse if they kept her on the season kept it intact as it was and you know would they have made the same decision five ten years before <laughs> I kind of doubt it. I really don't know how they would have handled it, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had that thought myself where, like, this is one example of manipulative editing working in the favor, like, in the moral high ground. You know, we were able to use editing in this circumstance to change the perception of the show for the better, to minimize this bad person getting any more attention than they already did, which is a good thing. But I do kind of feel like if this had happened in season four or season five, is there a possibility that a different storyline would have been crafted? Like, would they have left Sherry Pie in there and done some sort of big reveal of her bad deeds in the finale just to garner ratings? I mean, I hope not, but... I wouldn't rule that out completely, but thankfully they did the right thing in this circumstance. Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky situation to find yourself in. As I said, like a 
No one wants to find out two days before the episode is going to air that they have this person who has done horrible things. But that's the risk that you run sometimes with a reality show. I mean, there are so many shows that have had contestants that it, you know, becomes revealed at some point that they did something that they shouldn't have done, that there is something (laughs) hiding in their past that they were trying to cover up. It's something that uh, too many shows have to deal with, unfortunately, and there's no good way to do it. But I think that VH1 did the best that they could, given their circumstances. It's just, it sucks that Sherry Pie made it so far. <laughs> and like, if she had been eliminated in like the first episode or two, it wouldn't have been as big a deal. But you have to deal with it for the entire season. It's just, uh, yeah. Shame. I was actually surprised when I was. So I haven't seen season twelve yet because for whatever reason it's not on Paramount Plus. But I was surprised when I was reading about this incident because like the way we had talked about it like you and I like I really thought that she didn't last that long and then I was reading today like she made it to the final four it's like what a nightmare <laughs> like mm-hmm. just something to deal with for the entire season it's so unfortunate yeah it really is another very unfortunate thing related to season 12 <laughs> is COVID-19 that... <laughs> it was an unfortunate thing for the entire world the film the filming of the season took place in the summer of 2019 but it premiered on February 29th I think of 2020 so a couple of weeks before the world shut down <laughs> and it kept the show from doing a live season finale the queens had to compete <laughs> in their homes and just record all of their own performances their lip sync performances and they had to assemble sets in their homes and it was <laughs> just kind of crazy but really i mean fascinating to watch in all honesty but that is something that never could have happened 10 years ago like if we're talking about <laughs> ways that the show has changed over time the season probably would have just ended and <laughs> they yeah. would have just canceled it without a winner honestly and season 13 then also had to film the its entire course during the pandemic so there were all sorts of you know safeguards in place behind the scenes the judges were separated at the judging table by plexiglass and anytime the queens were not on screen they had to be wearing masks everyone around them on the crew had to be wearing masks at all times you wouldn't really guess that there was all of that going on behind the scenes there are a couple of mentions of it that the queens will acknowledge it in some way but most of the time it functions very much like any other season without any kind of reference to COVID at all i think that this really speaks to the show's resiliency i think that overall this is just one example of the way that the show is able to sort of adapt and grow over time which is why i think it's been only growing in its success over its 13 seasons and all of the international spin-offs like their ability to change and adapt like it's not only through the pandemic that that happens i think that even just the inclusivity of the show has changed and adapted over time i think that even looking at the quality of the show like they're not afraid to push and try things and adapt I mean that's really the I keep just saying it but like the show (laughs) does just have this really amazing quality to persevere and to adapt and that's I think one of the hallmarks of why it has been so successful yeah in a way I think the show kind of had to be resilient because it knows the role that it is playing 
for the queer community. It is such a pillar. It is the pinnacle of queer culture on television, of the representation of the LGBTQ plus community. And shutting the show down would have been devastating for the community. It would have been yet another blow against this community that has had more than its fair share of letdowns over the years. And, you know, the show knows the place that it holds for those people. It is a life raft for some people. It is more than just a television show. It is a place where people can feel seen. And uh, the show did what it had to do to remain seen. And, I mean, let's be honest here. There is a financial component to keeping the show going, too. (laughs) You don't want to (laughs) not put the show on the air because you know that it's going to generate money for you. But I think that the show persevered mainly because of the sense of duty it had to its community and giving it a spotlight in the mainstream. Well, I think you're so right about calling it a pillar of queer culture or like a pillar within the queer community. And I think that that's something that the show has become partially because it has been so open since season one about issues that face the queer community. In season one, there was a contestant who revealed that they were HIV positive on the show, which is a huge deal. The contestant was Angina? Angina, yes. Okay. It happens again in season six with Trinity K. Bonet, who is now on All Star 6, a little 6-6 six, six action there. But I think <laughs> being open about these issues, like, I mean, HIV is an issue that can affect anyone, but it very much is a queer community issue just because of the history of the AIDS epidemic and HIV. So I think sharing that and showing that and using the show as a platform to talk about something like that, like how could the community not rally behind a show like that? Like how could it not fall in love with the show for just so openly being a platform to talk about these issues? You know what I mean? Yeah, especially in 2000 when season one was airing, things were still very stigmatized for people who had HIV. And, you know, even continuing today, those exist, but they've, I think, started to chip away a little bit because of people like Angina, because of Trinity K. Bonet, because of these people who are willing to live their truth and speak it on the platform that they are given. And they don't feel the need to hide on a show like Drag Race because it is an open and inclusive space. Another example of the show being a place for people to be themselves and to express who they actually are is in season two. There's a contestant named Sonique who was eliminated pretty early on in the season, but on the reunion show, she revealed that she was a trans woman, and that was the first time that anyone came out as trans on the show. Later on in season five, there was a contestant named Monica Beverly Hills who revealed during the competition that she was a trans woman. In season nine, the show had its first out trans woman cast on the show. Um, Her name was Peppermint, and in season 13, they had their first trans man contestant, Gottmik. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the show has served as this this platform for people of all gender identities. Maybe not as strongly at sometimes as it should have been, but it does allow people to see themselves on television in a way that so few other shows do. And just allowing people to have someone that they can identify with, that they can look up to, and, you know, seeing someone being brave enough to say to the world, I am trans and I do drag and that's okay. (laughs) That (laughs) helps so many people. And when it comes to letting people know that they are not alone and that the way that they are, the way that they see themselves in the world is okay. And Drag Race does more than a little bit 
for that. It does the most of <laughs> maybe any show on television. Yeah, you're absolutely right in saying that. <laughs> Do you want to talk about some of the ways in which the show has impacted our world? <laughs> Yeah, let's go right into some of the other broader impact of the show. I would say that one of the biggest impacts that the show has had is on the drag industry itself. I think that the show has revitalized or even caused a revolution to happen in the drag industry. In addition to the hundreds of thousands of queens who are now performing to sold out venues. There are also so many companies, which if you do watch the show, you get a sense of this throughout like sort of the sponsorships that happen on the show. But there are so many companies dedicated to just drag clothes, wigs, accessories. And there are probably, I would say, an all time high of perform of like drag performers at this point who are actually making a living doing drag and I think that a lot of that is because of RuPaul's Drag Race just allowing drag to reach a broader audience and there's even a convention called DragCon which is a drag themed sort of comic-con type convention (laughs) that i actually did a little research on myself makes a ton of money so Mm -hmm. drag is no longer just this fringe thing i think those roots are still there to some degree but drag is now a viable way to make money and is its own industry I also did a little research and tried to find an estimate of the economic impact of Drag Race, and I couldn't find one. But I think it's <laughs> gotta be into at least the tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. When you think about every, you know, every queen who's been on the show has merchandise. She has music. She has a web series and only fans. Like, <laughs> and that's <laughs> not even a joke. A lot of them do. <laughs> that's very real. Yeah. It's so like just thinking about how much money beyond just their appearances at clubs and their marketing opportunities, the partnerships that they do through social media and things like that. It's a gigantic amount of money that the queens from this show and the name of the show itself is generating. So if any economists are out there listening and want to study the actual economic impact impact and provide us with results please do i'm guessing that one of the reasons no one has measured it is because if you aren't aware of drag culture you probably just don't realize the impact that it has you know it is still seen as a pretty alternative kind of art form it's very much its own thing still and you know it still is working its way toward the mainstream closer and closer every day but it's it's still kind of little understood by outsiders so if you aren't already engaged in that universe you just aren't seeing how big that impact is it's like drugs or like black market organs like you know it's there you just don't realize the full extent of how much money is being made off of them (laughs) If you want a little taste of some numbers, I was able to find one article by the BBC that specifically cited some numbers for DragCon 2017. Okay. I know that DragCon 2017 had $9 million worth of merchandise sales alone. And had an attendance of 40,000 people at $40 a ticket, which would come out to about $1.6 million in ticket sales. Wow. So that is just for like 
things happening at the convention alone that doesn't include hotels, food, transportation, all happening in the area where the event was hosted. So you can probably estimate a few million dollars on top of that in just, you know, what people need to do to get by in an area that they're visiting. That's just one event. And keeping in mind that in major cities, like, you know, I mean, when Cody came to visit me, we went to a drag show. Like, I don't know how much those girls made that night, but I'm guessing it was a decent amount of money and the venue itself making money. And then there are clubs like this in every major city in America and overseas. And that's just one thing. I mean, like you were saying, everyone has their their own merchandise, their own stuff that they're doing. So it's... I mean, I think you're not wrong in saying that it's hundreds of millions of dollars being generated by this industry. Yeah, and even if a queen has disavowed drag race is not, you know, they can say that they are not influenced by what happens on the show. I think the show has transformed the industry in such a way that it is inextricable at this point. Not everyone watches every season of the show, maybe, but if you're seeing something in pop culture related to drag, or you're finding some kind of way in to the art form, it's probably stemming from drag race at this point. It or in some way was influenced by something that stems from drag race. So the show just totally changed what was very much an alternative kind of underground scene. And turn it into something that actually generates so much money that, you know, people who don't even want anything to do with the show can't really avoid if they're going to do this for a living. Queens at the show that we went to when I was visiting Elena said that they were not interested in, you know, ever appearing on Drag Race, but you can be sure that they have been influenced in some way by the show. Even us just going at all. I mean, if I had been invited to a drag show by someone, I would have gone. Like, there's no reason I wouldn't have. But I would not have sought out a drag show had I not watched Drag Race. So, mm -hmm. you know, the performers in that show saying they'll never go on the show and like kind of uh, criticizing it to some degree, they've got to know that a lot of the people watching them are there because they're fans of RuPaul's Drag Race. And there's mm -hmm. nothing wrong with that. I mean, I, you can do, I mean, this is getting way off topic, but you can do all types of drag. It doesn't have to be what you see on the show. And I think the show as a gateway into more alternative types of drag or more local drag or whatever you want to say is a beautiful thing. It's, it's amazing that it has grown just exposure for this art form. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the things I think that's a pretty natural segue that the show has been sort of criticized for is not fully representing the spectrum of drag that exists. There has been sort of a, especially in later seasons, sort of a dismissal or ignorance of unpolished, if you will, or quote unquote artsier and non-mainstream drag. For example, there's never been a bearded queen on the US show, which is, you know, maybe not the most common thing that you will see, but it's certainly something that exists. And there's just this idea of what makes a good queen on the US show that I think other international versions maybe don't quite have. I think we've seen some sort of sloppier queens, if you will, <laughs> on some of the international iterations, which is cool because it gives you an idea a little bit of what the uh, drag scene might be like in that country but there's different elements on 
the show that are not suited to every style of drag. There's a heavy em- emphasis on comedy in a lot of the challenges when not all queens want to be funny. And, you know, the structure of the competition means that the queens are having to do a comedy challenge one week and then a dancing challenge the next week and then a fashion design challenge the next week. That structure sort of means that a queen is only likely to win if she is a Jack or Jill of all trades. <laughs> um, and so the queens have to prove that they're able to do everything when they could rightfully be a superstar for only their makeup art talent or only their modeling talent. It must be frustrating, I guess is what I'm trying to say, for certain queens that don't feel like they will get the opportunities that other queens have because what they do in drag is not as viable on the show or not seen as desirable enough to be on the show. Does that make sense? That does make sense. I'm actually really glad that you mentioned the international versions as being sort of more inclusive of more types of drag, because that was one thing that I really liked about UK season two. I liked seeing these different, like, you know, Ginny Lemon, Mm -hmm. like her drag is so different from like a, you know, Bianca Del Rio. Like those are like two very different queens. Maybe that's not her polar opposite, but that was just (laughs) the first person that came to mind. I liked, you know, not to get into too many details about just like, you know, little things, but in UK, like not everyone is cinching their waist and not everyone is padding and not everyone is doing these things. And it's nice to see. It's very refreshing and interesting and reminds me of what, I mean, the first season I watched was season four. And I feel like Sharon Needles and in later seasons, Alaska, or even more recently, there have been a few contestants that do this, but mostly early on, you saw these people doing really kind of avant-garde, almost like punk rock drag, where they're making costumes out of garbage bags. And like, that's (laughs) sort of refreshing to see. But in a weird way, I feel very similarly about Drag Race as I did our American Horror Story episode, where Hmm. I know we're comparison but with American Horror Story I felt like I was being pulled in two different directions and thinking about it I was being pulled down the horror as like a genre direction and then the impact of the show direction and with Drag Race it's very similar where I'm like oh drag as like an art form versus like drag race and they are two very separate things and I think in talking about the show we kind of have to keep that in mind because from the show's perspective it doesn't really matter if they're necessarily inclusive or not like they just want people to watch the show and Mm -hmm. maybe what draws people in is showing this more polished extremely beautiful makeup perfect costumes super realistic wigs like maybe that's just what people want to see and as much as that sucks maybe that's just what drag race knows it has to do to get people interested in watching yeah that's true so Something that I had kind of alluded to earlier, contestants on the show are going to get all of these opportunities that they would never have if they were not on the show. Basically getting onto the show at all means that you are forever a drag legend. (laughs) On no other reality competition show do contestants establish their career so permanently just by making it onto the show. Can you think of another show where even getting eliminated in the first episode, people will like flock to see you? At any event. No, not at all. (laughs) Yeah, like even the shows that have been huge in reality, you know, Survivor and American Idol, no one cares who finished in ninth place on season three of American Idol. Like not a single person 
I mean, maybe not a single person, but very, (laughs) very few people, a handful of people on Earth probably remember who finished 15th on season five of Survivor. But the Drag Race fans, like, you can say, oh, who went home fourth on season two? And people will tell you, I don't remember myself off the top of my head. Was it Morgan McMichael? No, it was Sonique, I think. But (laughs) anyway, it's just crazy how people latch on to those contestants and the queens take the exposure and that recognition and the opportunities that have been given to them because of it and they follow the example of RuPaul and of other queens before them and they capitalize on it at least the smart ones do uh, so that they (laughs) can create their own brand and generate sustainable income through their live appearances and brand partnerships and acting roles and all of that stuff. There have been a bunch of queens that have gotten their own TV shows, including Dragnificent on TLC and We Are Here on HBO, or they've guest starred on other mainstream shows. Willem, as we mentioned earlier, (laughs) Willem will tell you that she has been on basically every television show ever. (laughs) Um, And a bunch of queens who are on Drag Race have guest starred on RuPaul's Netflix show, AJ and the Queen. And more than just that, there have been a bunch of queens that have charted albums and singles on the Billboard charts. Some have starred in movies. Shangela from season three became the first person to ever walk the Oscars red carpet in drag. And dozens of queens from the show have over a million followers on social media. Willem, again, <laughs> and Latrice Royale, La Something Royale from yes. earlier, have even been on the West End in London. That's crazy. The way that these drag performers have gotten into mainstream pop culture. And I don't think that pop culture has fully recognized what an impact drag queens are. Like, a lot of these people are the standard bearers for dance music, for theatricality and performances. You look at any big name performer, like any big name artist, pop artist, of the last, I don't know, 50 years? They've been influenced in some way by drag queens. You know, like Cher is a drag queen. Madonna is a drag queen. Lady Gaga is a drag queen. Prince. Yes. Prince is a drag queen. Like it's, it's, (laughs) people don't make that connection, but that's absolutely where it is coming from. It's so cool that the show has elevated people to a place where that can be recognized and where those people can continue to lead pop culture. Yeah, absolutely. And as you're like naming all of those people it's making me think about something we haven't even mentioned at all yet in this episode which is like not only does the show highlight just the queer community and drag but so many people featured on the show are racially diverse too and that Mm -hmm. impact on media is just as impactful i mean eight of the 13 winners of the u.s show have been queens of color like that's incredible Mm -hmm. and about half of the cast every season tend to be people of color which and that's been the case since the beginning you know sometimes more than 50 percent and incidentally cbs has only recently announced just within i think the last year that 50 percent of casts on its reality competition shows such as survivor big brother amazing race will be people of color they are so behind the times on that because drag race has been doing it since 2009 it's not even news anymore if you have a cast of drag race that has more than half of the cast being people of color. I just think Drag Race is like the little engine that could just that has been like chugging along for 
for all this time. And I think, I mean, I think the Emmy's recognition has been great, but I also just think like it's reaching this point now where like enough people know about it at this point that like we can finally take that step back. Or maybe I'm just thinking this because we're talking about it today, but you know, we can finally take this step back and see just how much the show has been like this progressive force on TV. So, I mean, the show has had a huge amount of gender and racial diversity, as we've already said, but it has not been without criticism for what some people perceive as being exclusive of certain individuals' demographics, so forth. RuPaul said in an, in an interview in 2018 with The Guardian that he would, quote, probably not allow a transgender woman on the show who had begun a transition. Now, Peppermint, who we mentioned earlier, had competed on season nine of the show as the show's first openly trans-feminine contestant before production began. The criticism of RuPaul's statements was swift and widespread, and RuPaul tweeted an apology right away. And since then, the show really has made an effort to be more inclusive. Season 13, they had their first transmasculine contestant, Gottmik, and the motto of the show was changed from gentlemen, start your engines and may the best woman win, to racers, start your engines and may the best drag queen win. And uh, then the theme song was remixed to include may the best drag queen win instead of may the best woman win for All-Star 6. And actually, All-Star 6 has two openly trans-feminine contestants. Hello there. Hi. We are hopping in to give you a little update on our RuPaul episode. Yeah, we are interrupting ourselves in (laughs) the middle of this episode just to point out that we recorded this episode on RuPaul's Drag Race before the winner of All Stars Season 6 was crowned. The winner of that season was Kylie Sunique Love, who we were both very happy about because we love Kylie. But Kylie is a trans woman and was the first trans woman, trans person, to win RuPaul's Drag Race or any of the Drag Race franchises across the world. So we just wanted to point that out so it didn't seem like we were glossing over that uh, because that is an important landmark and we are very happy that the show has crowned a rightful winner who just happens to be trans and that's just another step of inclusivity that the show has taken and we know that the fans were very happy about not only Kylie's win but also that the show may have sort of not necessarily righted uh, some of the wrongs that it seemed to do toward the trans community earlier on, but to have at least shown that it has evolved and transformed its idea of who drag is for. Yeah. Just wanted to draw some attention to that. Back to your regularly scheduled podcast. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's sort of an interesting line that RuPaul himself or herself, I think he is open to either pronoun from what I read on Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I think that he walks a fine line or just lives in sort of an interesting space because I think as a drag queen, I mean, not every drag queen is a comedy queen, but I think being funny and like giving each other shade and making these jokes, I think that that's like a part of sort of drag culture. So I think a lot of like the things that were sort of woven throughout the fabric of the show. I mean, one that we didn't mention was that you've got she-mail, which was changed Mm. at some point due to criticism. So I think like RuPaul, like at one point, you know, maybe 25, 30 years ago, like those jokes would have landed. They would have been funny and like that language would have been acceptable. But 
we have seen a shift. We've seen a change and that's no longer acceptable. And I commend the show for adapting and listening to its audience and trying to become more appropriate or more inclusive in like the language that it uses. So one thing that we haven't really touched on yet is the sort of heavy editing that happens with Drag Race. And this is definitely something that happens with every reality show, whether competition or not. But I feel like Drag Race is a pretty big offender of editing the show in a way that makes it pretty obvious who is going to do well and who's not going to do well. But beyond that, I think the show, from what I've heard from contestants, who have been on the show. I mean, even in the most recent season of All Stars, there have been a few contestants who have referenced the edit that happened to them in their original seasons. I think that Drag Race really sort of manipulates people in a way that is sometimes problematic. I mean, they definitely cast people very intentionally. They kind of know who they want to win. They know who is going to be the villain. And they edit the show to make people fill those roles and it's kind of icky it's kind of gross it's unfortunately a real thing like it is a part of reality tv it's just going to happen because at the end of the day they're making a show that should be entertaining and you have to edit it in a way that's gonna make it entertaining you have to have characters but underneath it all these are just people and some people who have been on the show have had their lives really affected by the edit that they received on the show so it's kind of unfortunate that that happens but it's an unfortunate reality of reality tv yeah i mean this is something that has been happening since the earliest days of reality tv you know that you know Survivor contestants had an edit that was not favorable to them sometime, did not always reflect who they really were, either on the island or in real life. And that's something that happens on every show like this, really. But I think with Drag Race, it has a little bit of a bigger impact sometimes because most queens perform as a character, right? So on the show, they're being themselves, for the most part, behind the scenes in the workroom and everything. But on stage, they are representing who they are in their drag, who they make their living as, which is different from the person that they are in real life. So if you are characterizing someone's drag as a role to fill within this show, it can be harmful to their professional prospects after the show. It does have these bigger implications for people who are portraying a character because it adds another layer of the characterization to them that they may or may not want. Yeah, it's like there are queens who have been on the show who like no longer can book gigs because Mm -hmm. of the edit that they get on the show and it takes a really long time to rehab that image because the show is gonna be streaming indefinitely like the show is only gaining fans so like I think you know for example season four's villain Fifi O'Hare couldn't get work like immediately following that show and then came back for all stars tried to rehab her image herself and then like was sort of made into the villain again and has really had to like rebrand over the years in order to like keep working and that's just one example and season four was how many years ago 
I, I don't want to talk about it too much, but I just think like producers are not always the best either. So you're being like slapped at the production point and slapped at the edit point. And like, unless you are who they want to win, like you are really maybe in for a wild ride if you go on the show. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you can't blame the edit for everything, but you maybe can blame a lot of the production elements for what would cause someone to act in a certain way or to do or not do something that makes or breaks them. It's really just fascinating to me. All of the dynamics that go into that, that I think Drag Race is a perfect example of, but which are prevalent the whole way across the reality TV landscape. So... One thing that kept coming up for me when I was researching the show and reading different people's articles and opinions is that there's this sort of push-pull relationship people seem to have with the movement of drag toward a more mainstream place. So while most people seem really happy that the show has exposed audiences to drag, there is also this like fear present from a lot of people that as drag becomes more mainstream, something is being lost. Because drag has kind of always existed as this counterculture movement, for lack of a better word. But we can't deny that after everything we've talked about in this episode, that drag is becoming more mainstream. Queens are getting a lot more exposure. There's a lot more media that represents drag queens. And there is a real tangible drag industry out there. So my question for you is, do you think that within our lifetimes, we will see a tipping point where drag truly shifts from its place as counterculture to a true place of mainstream success? Will there be enough supporters of drag to make this happen? And when and if it does happen, will there be some sort of broader sort of cultural shift that happens because of it? And to maybe take it back to the show and make it a little more specific to that, because that is what we are supposed to be talking about. To what degree do you think that RuPaul's Drag Race has contributed to drag becoming more mainstream? And do you think that the show is in any way responsible for any sort of cultural changes that have already happened in our country? So that's a lot of questions, but I, <laughs> I think I can answer all of them rather succinctly. I think that drag will always be considered counterculture in some way. I don't know that drag is ever going to be considered truly mainstream. And I say that because like RuPaul even has, has been quoted as saying, Every time that you dress in drag, it is a political act because you are saying, this is the way society wants me to be and I'm going to do the opposite. I am born a man. I want to dress as a woman just because and no one is allowed to tell me I can't. Everyone who dresses in drag is doing it because they want to because they want to, period. <laughs> because they want to be themselves. Because it's a form of self-expression and it's a form of art that they don't need to feel restricted by. And I think... When something becomes mainstream, it usually is because it is watered down to a point where it will be appropriate for everyone's tastes. Even if there are some outliers within, you know, the mainstream landscape of whatever art form or media you're talking about, I think with drag, there aren't going to be people who say, I want to always do what everyone expects me to do. Most drag performers want to push the limits, push the boundaries, be something that nobody else is being, be something that society tells them they can't be, that they shouldn't do. So I think that we will continue to see more acceptance of drag as a legitimate art form, as a you know bona fide 
moneymaker in, in the way that we've already discussed. I think that we will continue to see a, an appreciation for the ways that drag queens contribute to pop culture, to the plights of different people in the world through their use of the platforms that they have. But I don't know that you can ever truly call drag mainstream without without losing what makes it impactful. Does that make sense? That does make sense. I understand the criticism that I've seen some people have for the show in saying that, you know, this shift toward this really polished sort of drag is drag becoming watered down or is drag becoming mainstream. But I think we've also seen a resistance to that. I mean, even at the drag show that we went to in Austin, you know, that type of performance was very different than what you would see on the show. And those mm -hmm. performers don't want to be on the show. And I know specifically in Brooklyn, I know alternative drag is really big there. There's a large scene of alt drag. So I don't know that it will ever truly be mainstream. I hope that it's not in a way. I think it's impactful and important that people see and are exposed to drag, but I like that it's this like scrappy kind of outsider art form that can be really political. I think that's amazing. But on the flip side, I will say that I do think that the show and the exposure that it gives to drag has already changed our world. I know that drag performers can be any race, any gender, any sexuality. Like the spectrum is very wide for like who a drag queen can be. But one statistic I looked up just in preparation for this episode involves Americans' view of transgender people. And the statistic I saw was that like every year more and more Americans are accepting like trans rights as something that should exist. Like it's only something that's growing even among communities where you wouldn't really expect to see that kind of acceptance growing. And I do think that shows like Drag Race are somewhat responsible for that just for showing contestants so openly of like such a diverse group of contestants like that's so important to show yeah absolutely i could not agree more i think that as you said drag existed for so long in that sort of underground space where there was no mainstream recognition of it and it was so misunderstood and the people who did it were so misunderstood and not only because of the show but certainly in large part because of the show those people have become understood and someone who knows nothing about drag can see the show can see these people telling their stories and just saying why it's important for them to be treated the same as everybody else and it can change their minds that's one of the things that i love about television it has the power to change people's minds i think we're getting closer and closer to that world where everyone can respect each other and we're still a long, long way away from that. And not just Drag Race is going to change that. <laughs> Everyone in the world can watch Drag Race 24-7 and we're not going to get to that place. But I think you can't deny what Drag Race has done to open people's minds and to change people's ideas. And Drag Race has shown us that if you make an entertaining television show that people get invested in and get engaged in, then you can change their minds subliminally, maybe without even... <laughs> without them even acknowledging it along the way. Well said. So, while the show is not without its flaws uh, and has made a couple of mistakes <laughs> over the years, I think the show really has learned from those mistakes and it basically is a masterclass in television production at this point, for better or worse. <laughs> it showcases people who are often 
not shown on television. And it allows audiences to understand who they are, why they do what they do, and to appreciate them. And despite the ever-present drama and shade, I think the show, at its core, fosters compassion, understanding, niceness, and teaching. And I'll let you think about the initials of those words <laughs> for a minute. Did you get it, Elena? I got it. I loved it, actually. <laughs> okay, cool. For those who don't realize, those initials on the show stand for... Um, Oh my gosh. <laughs> Charisma, uniqueness, nerve, and talent. How did I forget? See you next Tuesday. I couldn't think of charisma. I wanted to say communication. And I was like, that's not <laughs> it. Like, what? Comedy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, charisma, uniqueness, nerve, and talent is what the show says that the queens are showcasing. But I think that the show itself displays its compassion, understanding, niceness, and teaching. Yeah. And most importantly, love. Because if you can't love yourself, how in the hell are you going to love somebody else? Can I get an amen up in here? Amen! All right, now let the music play. <laughs> okay. Peanut butter. Okay. No, don't sing it. We'll have to pay for it. <laughs> we don't have the money for that. We don't make money <laughs> off of this yet. But if you want to pay us money, please do. You can... Leave us a tip. Yes, that's right. We will accept $5,000 cash tips. If you want to send us a DM on our Instagram, at Televisionary Podcast, we would be glad to get back to you with some marketing partnership opportunities, just like the queens would do. Or you could just, you know, like, Venmo us a 10, you know? We should probably set up a Venmo for this podcast in case people want to pay us for listening to it. We will definitely take money from you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. If you know us and see us in person sometime and just want to give us some money, that's fine. All right. Well, <laughs> I think we've been recording long enough and I think that we may still have enough energy to talk a little drag race on the mini-sode, which if you haven't been listening to our mini-sodes, you're only getting half the story. Ooh, I love that. <laughs> so you can look for that. I mean, you know, no guarantees. We may not talk about drag race, but we might. So um, yeah, check out our mini-sodes. They're kind of fun. They're kind of different. And, you know, you get to know us on a whole other level. Follow us on Instagram at Televisionary Podcast and... Thank you for listening. Yeah, thanks. I am Cody Hoffman. And I am Elena Hillard. And I hope you all have a great morning, day, or night, whatever time it is, wherever you are. Bye. Bye, hunty. <laughs> thanks for listening to Televisionary. If you like what you heard, share this episode with a friend. You can follow us on Instagram at Televisionary Podcast. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. Bye.